Dear friends of Jesus Christ, today we enter a new section in the book of 1 Corinthians, a section which is all about the public worship service. How things are supposed to go, how things ought to go, how we ought to carry ourselves and show up when we show, when we gather together as Christ's body. Before diving in, let's pull back for a quick bird's eye view. Recall that the church in Corinth is a church plagued by issues, lots of issues. Their council was not just dealing with one or two contentious things, but seven or eight. Yikes. And so Paul picks up the pen and he brings gospel truth to bear on their situation. Here's where we've gone, uh, here's what we've gone through so far. 1 Corinthians 1-4, to a whole section concerning leadership issues and div divisions in the church. 1 Corinthians 5-7, through concerning sex, marriage, singleness, and lawsuits too. 1 Corinthians 8-10, through concerning food sacrifice to idols. We spent the last three weeks on that. And up, taking us till Easter will be the next section, concerning the worship service. Now about worship. What happens when we gather? How are things supposed to go? Is there a dress code or not? Is there a right and a wrong way to celebrate the Lord's Supper? What about the free exercise of spiritual gifts or speaking in tongues? I have noticed throughout my years of pastoral ministry that people um, could care less about a lot of things, but they have strong opinions about what happens when we gather for worship. So now is our time to talk about it. Are you ready? <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 2. This is a tricky, tricky teaching, <clears throat> and I feel like I need more time to get to the bottom of it. But here we are, and we need to go through it. Hear now the word of the Lord. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So Paul's speaking to the church and he's commending them. I taught you a way, I taught you a pattern of what it looks like to gather for worship. And I'm commending you for keeping with that. But, there's always a but, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it is, if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then, well, she should cover her head. A man not, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. 
Is it not proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, where to begin? Let's start with this. I have decided in solidarity with my sisters to start wearing a hat to worship. And since this is the best one I own, well, here we go. What do you think? Does this work? This is where I'm getting head shakes. Okay, maybe this one doesn't work. What about this? Is this better? Joseph, what do you think, buddy? I don't know. That's not better. We could try sideways. Yeah, yeah. Respectful or not? No. Maybe this is even hard for you to look at in a way, right? Because it's kind of uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. Why? Why is it uncomfortable? I'll take this off. I'm uncomfortable too. It's interesting, isn't it? The change we feel when something is added to our body or our head. It would be, a weir- it would be weird for a baseball player not to wear a hat but it's pretty weird and disrespectful when a preacher wears a hat. Dressed like this, attire, it's not everything, but it certainly matters. I tend to wear, um, for instance, when we have a funeral at our church, I tend to wear my one and only dark suit. I really don't like wearing it. It fit me a lot better when I was 34. But out of respect for the deceased and out of respect for the family, I get dressed up for the funeral. It would not be right for me to show up to a funeral wearing a a Hawaiian t-shirt, ripped jeans, and a baseball hat. There'd be something very dishonorable, disrespectful about that. What we're talking about today is how to show up for worship in a way that is respectable, in a way that is honorable. And it's about more than just clothes. It's about mission. It's about honoring the God who made us, male and female, and how he is remaking us in Christ. Now, we know that head coverings were common in the Roman world, in fact, not just common, it's what every respectable woman did when, they, when she left the house. She wore a, a, a light shawl called Apala or Astola. And every time they went out, they'd pull this shawl over their heads. Why? Well, they were fashionable in that everyone was wearing one. And functional, they could keep the hot sun off your ears. But they also had a a symbolic significance. Like a wedding ring, they communicated belonging. Married women wore the shawl to mark themselves as married, 
Connected to this, the shawl also symbolized sexual modesty. My life is in control. My hair is in control. My life is in control. (laughs) Does it work that way today? I don't know. Prostitutes wore their hair down, and that was the sign of sexual availability. Respectable women kept their hair in check. While married women definitely wore the shawl, it's likely that unmarried women wore something over their head too. But don't press me on the details because I could not figure that one out. So for women in Corinth, covering one's head in public was the norm. Now, what about the public worship service? Obviously, there was a bit of debate about head coverings in the church, or else Paul wouldn't have wasted ink on it. But it's hard to figure out what the debate was over. Maybe some of the ladies were wanting to burn the shawl. What's with this symbol of belonging to a man, they asked themselves. Don't we all belong together in Christ? Aren't we one in him? Hold on there, you can imagine others chiming in. The people of Corinth already think we're crazy enough for meeting together as men and women in the same room. If we remove these shawls, they'll think we're prostitutes. And besides, isn't there something significant about the differences between men and women? And shouldn't that be reflected somehow in how we dress and when we gather before the face of God? Now we know from the meat sacrifice to idols section of the letter that Paul is a missionary at heart, and that means that his angle, as we've seen, is to become all things to all people so as to win some. And if wearing a head covering earns you the respect of your non-Christian neighbors, then Paul's going to say, by all means, wear the head covering. But though mission is certainly an aspect of this passage, it's clear that Paul is not simply speaking as a missionary. He's also speaking as a theologian. Head coverings for Paul aren't simply about fitting in. They are about what is fitting, it seems, for a woman's identity before God. And this is where things get tricky. Verse 3. I want you to realize, he writes, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, which was a shameful thing in ancient Corinth. There is a lot of debate about what Paul means by the word head in this text. The Greek word is uh, kephale, and everyone agrees that Paul is using uh, kephale in a metaphorical sense. So he's not talking about a literal head, but the metaphorical head. And there are three options for understanding what he means by this, and not a lot of consensus, and there is thousands of years of very dense theological reflections on just this word. So I'm going to give a bit of a bird's eye view, and we'll try to sort it out, but we'll probably not come to any solid conclusion. So there are three options. Head could mean authority, as in leader or boss. The head of a business is its CEO. The ruler of woman is man. But head could also mean source, 
Like the headwaters of the Nadawasaga, Eve came out of Adam. Adam was the source of Eve. Or head could mean topmost or preeminent. The chairperson is the head of the board. They are not necessarily over and above the other board members, but when the media wants an interview, they speak with the chair. The chairperson represents the whole, not as authoritative, but as the one chosen to represent the whole body. So what sense of kefale is Paul using here? Those who opt for the authority reading have some things going from them. In some ways, it feels like the natural reading. There's God, there's Jesus, there's man, there's woman. Woman answers to man, man answers to Jesus, Jesus answers to God. It is clean, it is clear, everyone knows their place. And there are plenty of Christians who interpret this passage in this way, and some of them still require women to wear hats. And all of them are generally against women holding positions of leadership in the church. The trouble is that Paul assumes that women are going to be involved in the public worship service. So this passage is actually used to support women in leadership because Paul says, when you pray and when you prophesy, so there is active engagement on the behalf on, for women to pray and prophesy in the worship service, you're just supposed to do it with your head covered. Also, is God the Father over the Son like a boss is over his employee? No, the Son proceeds from the Father, but is not less than the Father. In fact, in classical Trinitarian theology, the Son is God no less than the Father is God. So the clean-cut hierarchical, hierarchical reading has its challenges. Those who opt for the source understanding of head are, are generally more egalitarian in their perspective on things, and they are quick to point out verse 11 and 12 to make their point. And it seems as though Paul is kind of floundering through this and looking at it from different angles. But listen what he says here. Nevertheless, in the Lord, women is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as women came from man, there's that source language, so also man is born of woman, also source. But everything comes from God, the ultimate source. So question, how many of you were born of a woman? Raise your hand. I think we don't have any alien creatures here, I think. All of us, to be part of the human race, is to come from a woman. So Eve was taken out of Adam's side, but every other Adam came into the world through Eve. So who's the head? Who's the source of who? It seems that there is a reciprocity here between male and female. Men need women. Women need men. Women magnify the uniqueness of man, and man magnifies the uniqueness of woman. We're in this together. And isn't that the way within God's own life too? The Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. The Son says, not my will done, but your will be done. And the Father responds by giving all authority and on heaven and on earth to his Son. The trouble with the egalitarian reading is that, well, Paul still does insist upon 
upon head coverings. It's some sort of sign. And it's not just for missional reasons. There is a differential between the sexes that somehow needs to be represented physically. The third option, head meaning topmost, is uh, the one I'm kind of partial to at this point, but I'm going to need some months to work it out. So if you think about our own church leadership structure, our church is led by a council. And right now, Maria, who prayed for us, is the chair of that council. Now, is Maria, as chairperson, above the other office bearers in an authoritative sense? No, she's not. But she does represent us in a special way when it comes to making announcements on behalf of the council. In that sense, she's our top elder in that she represents the body. She represents the group. But she's not above the group in authority. She can't make this... Anyway, you're getting what I'm saying. I'm repeating myself. But that's what is meant by topmost. Kind of like God the Father is the public face of the Trinity. The Father is topmost. We pray to him. We worship him. Jesus teaches us to pray to the Father And so it is that male and female are equal in the sense that we are both made in the image of God. And yet is it not the case that the husband is, in a sense, the representative head of the family? Who do potential son-in-laws talk to when they want to marry a daughter? The representative head. Who walks the daughter down the aisle? The representative head. Who would be the first to stand up to die for family in the case of threat? The husband, with the wife right beside him. And of course, a good husband, when asked to make a decision on behalf of the family, what's the first thing a good husband says? Let me consult my wife first. We need to make a decision. I'll bring the decision, but we will make it together. So might that be what Paul is getting at here? And might it be the best, uh, um, it might it be best to have this representative role somehow seen in symbols that we wear? Whatever the reason, Paul thinks that the practice of covering one head, one's head for women needs to be maintained. But for men, decorum is different. Long hair and shawls are a woman's glory, but, verse 4, every man who prays or prophesy with his head covered dishonors his head. To which I say, I don't think the Pope got the message. That is a big hat. Right? I'm, I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's also symbols, hey? What do symbols communicate? And how do symbols change throughout time? And here's this on hair length. Verse 14, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Hmm. So women are to cover their heads, keep their hair in check, but men are to keep them uncovered, but to keep their hair short. So this is hard to work through, right? Because it's 
it it's, doesn't always make sense. And I think, once again, context probably is going to be helpful for us here. Roman men were notorious groomers and shavers. Beards and body hair were meticulously scrubbed off. This is what respectable men did. But then if you think about Jews, like Jesus or the disciples, we always imagine them with beards and long hair because that's what respectable Jews, that's how they wore their, their hair. And so we're left with questions. If Paul were simply talking about dress code for mission, that would be easy to understand. But Paul isn't simply appealing to mission. He's appealing somehow to the way things are and how that should be reflected in how we dress. And so we need to ask questions like, are head coverings to be worn by all women in all times and places? Or is that an old wineskin that needs updating for our current cultural moment? Is short hair and clean-shaven faces the definitive decorum for men for when they gather for worship for all times and places? Should we have a little barber shop at the back of the church so when men come in with maybe three-inch long hair, it's like, oh, we got to take it down to one inch. What do we need to do here, right? How do we apply these principles today? And we might stand back and wonder, too, why does any of this matter? Were Jesus' disciples clean-shaven and well-dressed when Jesus called them out of the boat and said, follow me? And doesn't God look at the heart and not the packaging? And isn't it true that we can very easily hide our true selves behind suit and tie? It's not too hard to look respectable on Sunday mornings. It's a lot harder to live respectable lives the rest of the week. So this is not an easy passage to interpret and apply today, and um, therefore I will try to keep one of my rules for preaching. If you can't be clear, you might as well be brief. It seems to me that the overarching principle in this passage is that decorum matters. Dress in a way that is respectable to the people you want to reach. Dress and carry yourself in a way that respects the God who made you and who has redeemed you as men and women in Christ. Missionaries have always stressed the first point. Dress for the mission. If you want to connect with the culture you're trying to reach, then dress as they dress and eat as they eat. Show respect to where they are by showing up in their clothes. Before Brittany and I got married, Brittany worked for a few months with missionaries in Mali, West Africa, and if she didn't wear a head covering while out in the marketplace, she would have never got a hearing with any of the Muslim women she was trying to build a relationship with. So, be all things for all people. If head coverings gets you in the door, wear a head covering. Imagine the reputation we'd get here in Alston if we all dressed up in white gowns for worship. People would think we were crazy and they wouldn't drop their children off for gems and cadets anymore. Dress for the mission. Show up in a way that is respectable for the people you're trying to reach. Here's the first principle. So dress for the mission, fit in. 
But there's a limit to trying to fit in. For instance, if you were to drive by Banting High School at lunch, you'll notice it is fashionable for girls to show their midriff. It could be minus 10 outside and bellies everywhere. So should we buy short shirts to reach those who wear short shirts? No. For what's more important than fitting in is dressing in a way that honors God. And what honors God? Well, we can debate the details, but generally speaking, you know. You know. You have a sense in your own heart, your own mind, what it looks like to dress in a way that honors God. But this can be tricky. Because some of you grew up in households that were super strict about worship attire and you grew to resent it. And besides, you saw how your parents acted Monday through Saturday and they couldn't fool you with their suit and dress on a Sunday morning. And so you came to throw all that out and I'm going to church in blue jeans and t-shirt. I'm going to church just as I am. God looks at the heart. And I am grateful for this trend, not only because it got rid of the tie, but it is true that God looks at the inside, not on the outside, and it is of no use to shine up the outside if the inside is not in the right place. And yet sometimes what we do with our outside helps prepare our inside for worship. Setting aside special clothes can help us remember our identity as God set aside people. And also... Wearing modest but tasteful clothing can also help us delight and acknowledge our differences as men and women. We are not the same. We complement each other. If I were to dress as a woman, as a woman, that may help me build bridges with certain parts of our community, but it would disrespect the God who has purposely made me a man. And there is a way to dress as a man that respects God's design, just as there is a way to dress as a woman that respects God's design. How can you dress in a way that fits the woman God has made you to be? How can you dress in a way that shows your belonging to your husband? Women in the ancient world wore shawls as a sign of belonging to their husband. We wear wedding rings, and dress modestly. I think that's what God is after, or what Paul is after here. So dress for the mission, but also dress for the God who has made us, male and female. He's created us. Now the big question everyone wants to have answer is, does this mean head coverings are still mandatory? Should we pull out the shawl box and put it at the back of church so that when everyone comes in, we can hand them out. No. That made sense in ancient Corinth. Today, a wedding ring signals the same thing. Now, all this talk about decorum and clothing is fine, but it can also be a little anxiety-producing because some of us don't feel comfortable in the bodies that we have. And the thought of dressing like a woman 
or dressing like a man makes us feel maybe ashamed because we don't like how our bodies look. And some of us don't have a lot of money. And even if we wanted to look better, we couldn't really afford to look better. And some of us are so tall that we can't find clothes to fit anywhere. This is why I wear the same thing week after week. I can't find clothes, people. This is the best I can do. Let's not forget God looks at the heart. Let's also not forget that Jesus praised the widow who gave but a pittance. She offered her best to God. It wasn't much, but it was her best. And let's also not forget that the best clothes we have is not clothes found in the closet, but the clothes we have through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been clothed in his righteousness. Think of Jesus stripped naked of all clothing, hung out to dry on the cross. And in and through his shameful suffering and death, God bestowed upon us, which is so written well in first, or Isaiah 61, God bestowed upon us a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It's not our attire that makes us fit to enter the presence of the King of kings in worship. It's Jesus Christ and the righteousness he has bestowed upon us as men and women. Dress for the mission. Dress to give your best to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, you have made such beautiful, such beautiful things, these people here today, men and women in your image. Lord, and you have clothed us with the garment of praise. You've taken off the spirit of heaviness and you've given us the garment of praise. And so, with the best that we have to offer, Lord, we want to reflect that reality, that inward reality that we have been made new. Help us not to be nitpicky or too focused on the details, Lord, but also help us to live into this, Lord, by offering you our best, both for the sake of the people we're trying to reach and for the sake of your glory and honor. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.